So today on the podcast, we wanted to, uh, and I say we, this is me and uh, Emily Horn, who's my wife and a mother of our child and co-teaching partner. Um, so someone that I'm very close to and had a lot of conversations recently with about some of the just huge upheavals happening right now in our society, one with the pandemic, right? Yes, to name one. <laughs> to, name, to name the first, uh, the first thing that came up this year. And then it seems like at least here in America, you know, one of the fallouts from the pandemic and the economic sudden stress that we're under and health stress, which is, you know, uh, affecting minority communities in way bigger percentages than it is white communities is this huge social and racial unrest, you know, and there's been protests and there's been violence that's overflown uh, into the streets as well. There's been the murder of George Floyd. All of this is triggered by the murder of George Floyd, which it's interesting because it's like, it wasn't really that. I mean, the sad thing is it wasn't really the event itself wasn't really unique. Unfortunately. Not. Right. So it seems like it was like yet another black person has been killed, murdered in this case. And on camera. On camera. And it's like for some reason this moment, you know, with, with the pandemic, with everything else that's happening. And climate change. Yeah, it's like all of the stress. And it's like in this moment, it, it sort of seems to have kicked off something, some kind of... Um, chain reaction. Chain reaction. And um, yeah, it definitely feels like something that is hitting really close to home for, for me. Um, so it feels like something that's it's really important. And I, I just wanted to start this conversation. This is kind of our statement, you could say. And, and I, I didn't feel like it was sufficient to just like write out some kind of statement and share. I felt like I really wanted to have this conversation with you, you know, as my partner in Buddhist Geeks and help, you know, helping guide this project um, to talk about like our own personal experience with these challenges and these issues, how it interfaces with teaching, with Western Buddhism, with Mindful, the mindfulness movement. With the systems that some of this is embedded in, the oppression and racism and um, financial security, <laughs> or not. Um, all of this comes into play right now. And giving voice to that is an important part of the process of facing it. Mm -hmm. And I think that is part of what we're all being asked to do is to really face not only the joys, but also the sorrows and to say, yes, this is happening. We can't fix it. I can't fix this. Um, and at the same time, giving voice to what's happening will allow us to see more clearly and with compassionate hearts respond in a way that it's time to, to do. We've got to do this work. Mm -hmm. So um, part, part of my intention in, in doing this, one is just to start by saying, Myself personally, Buddhist Geeks as an organization, our team, we really are fully in support of the Black Lives Matter movement. You know, yes. and I think, um, you know, for me, it really took this situation and, and this recent kind of uh, like of not being able to ignore it, um, to acknowledge publicly 
that this is something that I support. And I found myself very much like sympathizing and uh, understanding and empathizing, but not fully like saying, hey, no, publicly, my voice too, joining in with these other voices like black lives matter and they haven't been treated like they matter. And it's, and we're seeing evidence of that and not just in our lifetimes, but this is like a long standing deep pattern of uh, history and oppression. And that, you know, I, I understand that a lot of people in our country and a lot of white people in particular don't seem to understand that fact. But like, if you read the history, even the white history books, you see it to me, like, let's just start by acknowledging there's no question, you know, about the history of um, black Americans, you know, being and, oppressed and abused and murdered. Yeah. There's no, there's no question about the history of oppression uh, with black people in the United States. Um, there's question about the history that some white people are taught around what has happened. Right. Um, and you know, the, the movement, um, towards greater and greater, not, and not just inner freedom, but our freedom as well for all people, um, and especially black people right now. And that is what we really need to pay attention to. And it's, you know, when I hear you say ignoring, I'm like, yes, you know, there has been a part of myself that has ignored this. And I grew up in the South, you know, I have, um, this has been something that I've seen since a little girl and growing up in the South is different than some of the racism that I saw when I lived in Los Angeles, um, for the time that I did. So it's, it's definitely a cultural experience, um, that I come from of living in a small Southern town and, you know, ignoring as part of what it feels like happens with human consciousness when, yeah, when I start to face something, it's going to be incredibly challenging and painful, you know, and to, to really say, okay, yeah, there might be a part of me that's numbing out or ignoring this. That is a step towards, okay, let me see if I can let this in slowly mm -hmm. and digest this because it is quite traumatic for all parties involved. And right now we're seeing black people come up and say enough, enough trauma. Let's do something about this. Um, I was at this conference a couple of years ago, the training uh, with Diane Hamilton, who you know, um, the integral facilitator training. And I remember one of the key like suggestions she had at that training around having really difficult conversations around race, around gender, you know, all of the bas basically hot button topics like me, the Me Too movement, um, like we, we all, we, we practice facilitating conversations around those topics with, with, uh, with a group of people who were quite diverse. Like there's a lot of difference in that, in that group. And one of the things she pointed us to that I'm like, I want to remember here in this conversation is that to begin a conversation around a very charged topic, it's often helpful to begin with firsthand or first person experience. Because if we start with like trying to debate the facts or getting into like policy or talking about the politics of it, like that seems to very quickly lead to just difference and not any sort of shared common humanity or like, you know, I, I can't argue with your first person experience, like your experience of your life is your experience. Um, I may have a different experience. I will have a different experience, but if we can share and connect on that level, you know, there's, there's no really way to debate that. Um, it's just a sharing of experience. So I, I do have a couple, you know, things that I've wanted to share around this topic. 
but I haven't really known kind of quite the best way to do that. Um, and it felt to me like, you know, maybe you and I having this conversation and sharing some of our own experiences around race and around, um, you know, white privilege and around, you know, justice and like these big topics that are bubbling up right now societally that are really important. Um, I thought that might be helpful. Um, and my intention, my hope is that it kind of opens a conversation amongst those people who are listening to this, uh, who are white primarily, because mm -hmm. I don't think any of our experience around race and difference is going to be surprising to anyone, uh, who's non-white. <laughs> oh, yes. They have a PhD, most of them whiteness. It's the, it's right. me as a white person that's trying to educate myself in more and more deeper ways. Yeah. And, and maybe here it's good to kind of tease apart some differences between us because although we have a lot in common, we both grew up in the South and uh, in Western North Carolina, although a couple hours apart, um, we have a very similar experience of this culture growing up. One difference being that my family moved, immigrated here from to the South uh, from the North, from Michigan and New York. And prior to that, my grandfather, uh, my mother's side, this is my mother's family, uh, immigrated to the U.S. from Palestine. So, you know, I came in as an outsider in the South um, with an experience of being perceived as being white because I have light skin and I don't go by, I didn't have my grandfather's last name. And so I, for all intents and purposes, am white. But my internal experience of growing up in a mixed race family um, mixed language, mixed culture was mixed religion was that I could, I felt a, a certain identification also with the Arab perspective. So I think that's one of the things that we often, when we talk about this, we have some different, uh, slightly different vantage points because of that. And I think you also mentioned because you're a woman, mm -hmm. you have a different perspective as well. Yeah. And it, it is interesting to see um, that we can grow up two hours apart and still have such a different kind of experience. And then for me, uh, you know, growing up as a white woman and then coming into your family and really starting to see um, it reflected back to me how um, I am embedded in such a white culture. And so that's been a really um, awakening experience for me as well to be in relationship with that and to and to acknowledge that I can walk into your family and there you know people are Muslim and practicing um, and you know with headscarves and it's quite beautiful and yet you know it took me many years of being in relationship with you to honor the fact that there were cultural differences because part of what I grew up with was this understanding that um, we're all human you know the color blindness as you say or as it's said um, in the circles of of becoming more and more aware of these things is um, for me to been able to recognize my own colorblindness started to actually happen in relationship with you. So mm. um, just to make that um, known as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, uh, you know, again, connecting this to the personal level, I, I've been seeing recently, you know, as, as we've been having these conversations more and, ha and having conversations about race with our students more, informal teaching environments more, on retreats, I've been noticing like part of the reason I've in part avoided going into this topic so much is because my early experience um, 
leaving the South, leaving a rural Southern town, very small Southern Baptist primarily, you know, leaving that environment and going to Naropa University where we lived for a while and you you were working there. I found that the culture of Naropa was a, a very much of a progressive, pluralistic, primarily white community. And the conversation about race for me, I felt immediately um, blamed and shamed f- for my participation in being white. And I felt misunderstood because I felt like people were taking like the external appearance and they were making assumptions about my internal experience. And then they were dumping me into this category of the terrible, bad oppressor. <laughs> and at the time, I, I don't think I had the maturity to really see the truth, the, the truth part of that. Uh, for me, it was more of a reaction of like, well, fuck you. You don't know me. You don't know my experience. You don't know what I've been through. You don't know what I've seen. Um, and I just found it to be kind of dishonest that that sort of assessing and judging people based on external appearance and that being kind of the primary approach to trying to deal with race, it felt really problematic. And I think I was so reactive at that time that it took me a while to be able to kind of come back around and re-engage with this topic um, without feeling sort of that, that sort of defensiveness. Um, so that's part of what, for me, this journey has been about is like sort of noticing my own defensiveness, some of it valid and some of it, you know, a, a protection against looking at some of these very difficult topics. Yeah, I think you're right on with that. I mean, the protections around these issues and topics are very, very strong uh, because there is a lot of pain here. And to have these conversations, we have to be willing to move into the uncomfortable zone so that we can grow around them. Mm. And you brought in Naropa, and I think that that is where I did a lot of learning around these issues as well because they it was the first organization that I really worked with that were that had a diversity plan and an inclusion plan and right. you know I worked in the scholarship and the financial aid office for many many years and and part of the disillusionment with with um, such strong diversity efforts that I saw um, was that I started to realize with the scholarship and the financial aid that it wasn't necessarily the people that needed it that asked for it. It was the white privilege that was asking for it and applying for the scholarships. And I'm like, well, what is going on here that the systems that we're building to try to include are still actually not solving the problems? And, you know, it was really hard for me to sort through everything in Europa. You know, one of the movements at the time was to put the sticker on your cubicle that says safe zone. And I'm like, what? A safe zone? Like, how can you say this is safe? Like, I don't know. This is, I'm still trying to figure out if this is safe or not. Um, I'm trying to feel safe in my own internal experience, let alone be able to project that outward for everyone else to feel safe around me. Doesn't this need to be earned? You know, I, I saw enough racism and things growing up in the South from where I'm from that no, you know, I know that trust is earned. I can't just put up a sticker on my wall and call it safe, no matter how much I'm dedicated to diversity inclusion. So there's a symptom here of like white guilt and white fragility and um, shame that, you know, when, as we become more and more conscious for me, I can speak for myself around my whiteness. And I do see this in, um, you know, a lot of people around me. It's like there is this genuine 
um, response that does want to alleviate suffering. And yet when it comes from a place of not metabolizing the pain and the trauma around it personally and being able to talk through it, then we do start to unconsciously recreate the systems that cause oppression. And I think that is part of what this movement is trying to highlight, that it's not enough just to focus on your personal experience. We also have to see how we have embedded these structures unconsciously and are starting to perpetuate them. And I feel like that's part of what our work at Buddhist Geeks is really starting to work towards is um, seeing where we are doing that and saying, wait a minute, how can we do this differently? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I want to bring up um, Ken Wilbur here because while we were in Colorado at Naropa, I was also working for his Integral Institute and his sort of integral philosophy and theory, I think has informed both of us quite a bit. Um, I'd say me maybe the most, but you know, since you can't, can't avoid <laughs> hearing me <laughs> talk, <laughs> you've, you've been subjected to quite a bit of it yourself. Uh, and you've also read a lot of Wilbur's books and I think appreciate, um, the integral theory, even though I've read the non doorstopper ones. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and, and so, you know, part of, Part of what I appreciate about that theory, and I I think part of what it feels like often is missing in the conversation about race in kind of in more progressive white cultures that I've been part of, is this sort of acknowledgement of like the development of the human being, you know, that selves develop and evolve also, you know, and it's not just something that ends at childhood, childhood or ends with like, Jean Piaget's work on child development. It's something that seems to continue. Some people are more mature than others. And, you know, his, I think, basic idea of, of the evolution, the direction of that evolution is that it starts with the ego, it starts with the egocentrism, like me, my needs, my preferences, my wants, my desires. And then it gradually expands. The sense of self begins to include more. It's like, oh, and it's not just me. It's also my family it's my friends it's my tribe it's like the values of the tribe get internalized and i become you know uh an upstanding citizen you know like someone that people can rely on you know an ethnocentric self not just an egocentric self even though i don't leave that behind it's still there and then that 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 can grow further into world centrism you know where it's like not just my tribe or not my people but like I can actually identify with other human beings that look different, that come from a different background where I can identify with other humans that are different from me. And like, I can actually care about them as much as I might care about someone that's close to me or, or, you know, at least in my mind, I don't see them as fundamentally different. Um, And then beyond that, you know, Wilbur talks about the planet centric self of like, of, of what happens when we actually, can drop our primary identification with human, with our humanness, uh, with humanism and our human experience, and be like, actually, us humans are a pretty recent addition to the to the planet. And if you just look at the history as we understand it now, like we've been a pretty big disruption to this planet, and we don't know how it's going to play out yet. But like, we are part of this of this ecology. Like, the planet Earth, we're Earthlings. Um, without the earth supporting us, there is no us. And we're having a huge impact on so many species right now on the earth. Like we have no idea how, how uh, the impact that humans are having and how it'll play out. But we know it's not, 
right now it's not good for a lot of species. Yes. And, and what we're also saying is not good for a lot of species and black people and minorities are going to feel the brunt of that. And that's part of what's happening right now. And part of what I like about Wilbur is he does talk about it in the transcend and include that if we don't transcend and include all of those different aspects of what you're talking about, then it is self, it's violence, it's violence outwardly and it's violence inwardly. Um, and part of what's happening as we grow in order to be able to expand and include more is that we are also able to say, okay, both and, you know, we're not caught into this dualistic perspective as much. Um, we start to see that, oh, wait, that is kind of an outdated perspective that we can actually include more and more and more in our thinking. And especially in our um, spiritual and religious circles, um, just like my mom taught me growing up, it's like we all are one, you know, let's not focus on the racism we're all on one mm -hmm. but yeah like actually yes and both you know we all are one like I'm so happy that a lot of us with mindfulness and with um, practice we have really started to see how we break down and how we make sense of our reality um, so that we can include everyone and so that we can feel more and more connected um, and We've got to honor that. My experience is very different than a black mother's experience right now. I do not wake up in the middle of the night afraid if my son has not come home yet or my kid has not come home yet. You know, that's not something, that's not the level of fear that I'm going to live with as a parent and my kid. And that's a very different kind of reality. And as a spiritual practitioner, that's the kind of reality that I want to get curious about, that I want to understand more, that I want to say, huh, like, what is it like for you? Mm -hmm. And how can can we start to soften around our differences and experiences so that we can move to transcend them and include them in the vast, spacious, loving awareness that is here um, and is just not expressed um, in every situation? And that is heartbreaking. Yeah, part, part of why I find that model really helpful to bring to bear on this stuff is because I think part of the challenge that we're dealing with in our country is that there there are a lot of people who are very ethnocentric like that seems to be like their current edge where they have a hard time even getting really that all lives matter like that i think a lot of people saying that don't actually even really understand it what oh, it means no. No, that's like me growing up in a Christian small town, treat your neighbor as you want to be treated. You know, it's like, no, 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 what you don't treat. So you only white neighbors you treat like that because I'm white. You know, it's like you're not treating your black neighbors the same. I mean, that right. was very clear to me. Right. So, you know, it's, it's kind of the same response that I hear when I hear all lives matter coming from that that place. It's just like. Um, it's, it's from that place of being defensive and feeling attacked. Right. Um, and right now white supremacy is under attack in some ways and that is valid. And, you know, we need to bring more attention and awareness to white supremacy, which is different than white privilege. And yet that all lives matter to me is an indication of, of a conflation in some ways, um, between white supremacy and, um, privilege. Yeah. Um, my friend Corey DeVos, they have a show in uh, Integral Life called Integral Justice Warriors. And um, he's recently in the conversation with uh, several of the um, black leaders in the integral community and was and made this point that like the all lives matter language is a world centric phrase. It's like all lives matter, but it's being used on behalf of ethnocentric 
aims. You know, like really we're just trying to defend our little tribe, keep our, keep our power here. Whereas Black Lives Matter is, is ethnocentric language, but it's being used on behalf of a world-centric or, beyond, or, or even bigger perspective. And I think there, there's trying to, it's like, it's like I see this group of, I see a group sort of wanting to, to have this truth acknowledged, you know, to say actually like uh, our community does matter and it hasn't been being treated properly. And, and it's just, like you said, it's, it's, it's embedded in our culture, but it's embedded in our systems as well. And, and that's the other thing about integral, the integral analysis that I think is so useful. It's like, recognizing that there is our individual experience, there's our culture, there are systems, and then there's our bodies. You know, and all of those are, are actually valid perspectives on what's happening right now. Like you can't just, um, you know, from an integral point of view, you can't conflate everything to one of those dim- dimensions of life. And you life. can't just work on one of those dimensions either. That's right. You know, this is a holistic perspective. Right, and, and, and I think what's important for me to acknowledge in the conversation about race is that there's a certain prerequisite cognitive understanding that has to be present where we can actually hold in our mind these different perspectives and see that they're, they're different and they're, va- they're each valid. And I think a lot of people that I talk to about race that seem to me to be like um, in this camp of kind of what we call a racist camp, you know, these are like people I have connections with online, old friends, family members even, like I don't think, what I consistently see is that it's difficult for them to make the linkage, the connection between their experience, their personal individual experience and cultures and systems. Like I don't know that that a lot of folks have yet really fully learned about these cultures and systems and like, and don't know how to differentiate them. Like, oh, I, like as an individual, my experience isn't just come from nowhere you know it's actually part of this like this heritage you know this 4.5 billion year heritage that goes back to the big bang you know it's deep like our history is deep it's not our fault but our responsibility as part of what you know comes to me as i listen to you is that yeah it's deep we've got to know the past and we've got to have some sort of envisioning for the future of shared resources and distributed power. Um, and then, you know, we've got to be able to hold our center in this present moment and be willing to say, okay, well, where is that center? (laughs) You know, who is this centered around actually? And, you know, that's where mindfulness practice to me actually has the ability to start to support us in this quest for um, a new world. Let's be bold and say that, you know, um, because it does start to highlight, you know, how our cultures are embedded in our internal world and like how our experience does start to play out through us and how, you know, these power dynamics start to get more and more and more subtle, actually. Um, you know, I grew up really, really, um, striving to get ahead and to be the best. And, you know, and I'm starting to see, well, wait a second, like part of that is just internalized, um, 
views. And maybe that isn't where we need to be headed as a collective right now. Like maybe we need to start to focus on sharing these resources and um, starting to see that there is this natural sense of power that can arise when there's a natural understanding and availability to life. Um, but it's not this dominator power over hierarchy that we're so accustomed to and that starts to play out through our systems. Um, and there needs to be a lot of softening and understanding and like really gentleness when we start to 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 um to deconstruct these to be able to create the space that i hear what you're saying um that's needed to be able to see some of this stuff clearly um because what i really have learned um in some ways and i'm still learning is that the distribution of resources um has to do right now with power and the way that we you know, hold that is really, really, really important because then, um, it does start to lead to disadvantages and unequal opportunities and, um, heartbreak and death, you know, that is just, um, from an inclusive point of view is just really, really, really hard, um, to, to sit with. And yet that's what we've got to sit with right now. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we're dealing with, it seems like a moral crisis, moral crisis. Yeah. And I, I think of this very much like that, that this moral crisis we're experiencing in America around race is also connected to this larger meta crisis that we're in, you know, which is that there's so many interlocking interconnected crises that we're facing. There's the ecological crisis. There's the crisis of democracy, there's the meaning crisis, um, and there's these, this racial crisis that's happening, there's health crisis. You know, it, it, it's like we, I mean, crisis is the best word to describe the time that we're in. Yeah, it's true. And yeah. so it's, it's, it's like, okay, yes, we're in crisis. This is what's happening right now. Crisis yeah. is like this, you know. This is what we're learning and and our through our wisdom traditions and um, it's like okay, so crisis is like this and heartbreak is like this and how are we going to move forward together? Um, one of the most powerful um, exercises that I did in the diversity um, and inclusion class at Naropa was to see you know what happens when you divide people up into different areas that can't see each other give them the same assignment but different resources and how you know I was in the group with the colored pencils and the glitter crayons and the cool paper and then there was another group that just didn't even have anything to write down on they just had a pencil like how are they going to come up with something that's as cool and shiny and the best like mine if they don't have the resources and so it's like what are we going to do here you know now is the time for action. Um, I know at Buddhist Geeks, like we've been really, really um, softening around, like what are we doing and how are we going to serve people? And let's listen and let's learn and be willing to make mistakes and sit in the fire. Um, in our last life retreat that we did, we didn't have any kind of, you know, scholarship fund or required sign up fee or any of these things that um, could potentially be seen as a barrier to entry because we are trying to work with um, what we have and our resources and a resource rich organization and say, hey, like, how can we start to soften around these structures and these things that um, could um, start to include more and more people? Yeah, yeah. I'm glad you brought that up because, uh, you know, for me, the the last couple of years as we've transitioned from a kind of more of a capitalist based model of Buddhist geeks pay for service to 
this transparent generosity and non-transactional relationships when it comes to dharma and mindfulness and teaching yeah and 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 sharing yeah and for for me that that move has been i see now the connections between the sort of economics and the sort of the racial quality of this um, you know, and usually there's a lot of debate, you know, is this economics or is this race? Or is it technology? Cause we do have that issue with Buddhist geeks as far as you got to have a computer most of the time to get our stuff, but you know, we're working on that too. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, and that's true. And, and a lot more people are going to be coming online over the next mm-hmm. decade or two. And, you know, for, for me, the economics part is so important because, well, in part because of the history of Buddhism, and this is to me one of the most radical, quali- the most radical aspects of the Buddhist tradition, is this sort of generosity model that they that they operate under and that they started with, you know, which was a break from the caste system in India. Um, you know, it was this totally new category of people that were like spiritual practitioners, and they did they existed outside of the typical economics. And the different than the castes, and I think, you know, because of that, you see actually in early Buddhism, you see that women were involved in the early Buddhist tradition, which was really unheard of at that time and place. Um, unfortunately, it contracted after the Buddha was, you know, after he disappeared, it got more patriarchal. But like you had this amazing like openness in that com- community um, that was you know inclusive actually for its time, and you had this tremendous model where like monastics were living simply and they were living in interrelationship with the communities of people that they were near. Like they they had to be in like right relationship with those folks that the, the village nearby, or they wouldn't get food, mm-hmm. you know. And they were offering some of, some of their own services to the community, and the community was giving back to them in a re- uh, reciprocal generosity, mutual generosity. To me, that model, like how do how do we bring that to bear on the digital age? Mm-hmm. Like that's a really interesting question, and one of the results of it I've seen is that it lowers the barrier to entry. For people that don't, either don't have as much resources or are living in a country where the exchange rates yes. are different, and that's I think that's another aspect of this is national nationalities, because Buddhist geeks is extraordinarily diverse nationally. Mm-hmm. You know, if we, like our community is made up of a, of so many people from so many different countries, and the people that we work with in Turkey, for instance, mm-hmm. you know. Um, they're, you know, they've experienced such hyperinflation that like they can't, they couldn't afford to do stuff with us anymore. And we're like, wait a second, this is weird. This is wrong to be excluding people from Turkey because their government is in free fall right now. Mm -hmm. And this is the time they need the support the most. Mm -hmm. You know, and I think the same holds true for people, um, you know, that come from a a sort of minority experience where they haven't had the same opportunities and they don't have the same resources. You know, so for me, that's part of how we've been looking to address this at Buddhist Geeks is how do we open up a different kind of economics, but that's not sufficient. And it's a starting point. It's one of the starting places that we have chosen to, to put our energy. And it's also, um, important as far as Buddhist Geeks is concerned and my involvement with Buddhist Geeks to mention, um, that we have intentionally picked holacracy as our governing system, which is by its very nature, 
trying to alleviate a lot of the hierarchical modules and the power over systems. Um, I, we had a meeting, um, the other day where it was like, we took, I don't know, 45 minutes to elect roles and me in my typical business upbringing. And there is a slight dictator that I have in my personality was like, this is so inefficient. This is not efficient. This is not productive to spend this much time electing roles. And yet in the same sense is like, I could also see that like, if I came in in my typical business training, I have a business, you know, degree management degree from a, you know, land grant, North Carolina State University. It's privilege. It's like from that education, I don't, you don't spend that much time in a meeting doing those kind of things. Um, and that is what takes the voices right out of the room. I mean, that is part of, um, if we were really trying to include and open and hear and listen and have more voices and, um, along with the economics, we also have to look at our structures and holacracy is a really new structure. It's going against a lot of my ingrained, um, beliefs and a lot of how I've been trained. And at the same time, I see the impact of it where people are able to voice things that more than likely would not be able to get voiced in a typical business meeting. And that brings Dharma and business together. Yes. You know, all of these things go together, economics, Dharma, voices in the rooms, the structure of power that every organization holds. These are all really important things that just start to shine that light of attention mm -hmm. um, and awareness on. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, one thing I'd like to shine a light on a bit in this conversation too, because this is something I've, I've seen as really, really common both internally but, and also reflected in my connections and my um, colleagues and friends is I've noticed um, this sort of reactivity, the defensiveness ar around whiteness. And I can very much empathize with it. Like I shared my experience at Naropa, where I felt, felt like just being mis constantly misunderstood and being judged and evaluated based on external appearances, you know, which to me, that's, that's one of the, 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 the work in anti-racism is to avoid kind of taking cliches and preconceptions and assuming we know the full richness of a person's inner experience based on these cliches, you know, which can often be quite harmful. You know, there's the whole, like, there's the whole image of like the dangerous, like black man who's like going to rape our wives and children like that was used that that image was used for so long in america to um to really prevent and black people from flourishing movies and then our it's still there it's still yeah. there it's not as over the top but it's like but it's still present and you know and i think when anti-racist work starts to fall prey to the to the same tendencies then it it undermines itself and there is a lot of that like i just want to acknowledge there is a lot of uh, in the progressive communities, especially the white ones that I'm part of, I see a lot of like undermining, like a lot of communication, conflating things, confusing things, taking it too personally, taking things too personally or taking one's guilt and just kind of becoming a righteous warrior and like attacking all, all the wrong people kind of thing. Like so, some of that. And so I can understand the reactivity and the defensiveness. And, you know, at the same time, I find it unfortunate and sad when people, because they're defensive, they're, they're, because they're defensive, they're not willing to also acknowledge the truth that's present there. 
it's like, oh, actually, yeah, I don't appreciate how you're bringing this up and how you're having this conversation. And it makes me defensive, but there's still, it's still true. Like what's being pointed out, the harsh truth is still true. And I find there's a number of folks, myself included at times, where the, that we, we get kind of locked into our own defensiveness and are wanting to protect our own white egos, you know? And so we, we like become uh, what one commentator called anti-anti-racist. You know, where we're like, we're not, we're, we're like so reactive toward the people who are trying to do the anti-racism work and how they're doing it that we, that we actually put ourselves in this position where we're actually not helping. We're, we're, I think we're hurting the, the, this movement of, of racial awakening. And I, it, to me recently, it kind of like hit me in a big way that I was doing that. And I really saw like how unhelpful that was. Mm. And I don't, for some, whatever reasons, I felt that tendency starting to drop more and more. And I'm like, you know, two things can be true. You know, there can be a lot of unskillfulness around these conversations and a lot of like things that people are doing with good intentions mm -hmm. uh, that are, are leading to unhelpful results. Mm -hmm. And it's also true that like there's something here that we need to address collectively. Mm -hmm. And we all are implicated in it. Yes. And, and that's painful and difficult and confusing. Yes. Um, and yet it's also true. Yes. And where you ended with the painful, difficult, and confusing, it seems to me that even if you're a meditation practitioner, like this is part of what we learn to deal with in ourselves is how disorienting that pain can be and the confusion can be because we don't really know who we are anymore when we really take on this work. Um, we have to be able to soften around um, these internalized thoughts and views that, you know, have stemmed back 400 plus years. Yeah. And, and to our ethnocentric. Yeah. And um, to, and and to that part of us are, you know, for me and my white ego, it's like to soften and be like, yeah, honey, like that part of you is under attack right now and is going to die. And how quickly can I let can I let it go? Can I open it? You know, um, how can I soften around that and not take it so personally? Um, and let that ego death happen because through my practice, I've learned that there's much, 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 much greater potential and bigger space. Um, and when I can rest there, then the pain can move through me in a much easier way. It's not, um, it doesn't mean that it doesn't, that it feels good, you know, by any means, these things, this conversation does not feel good. It's very unpleasant. Um, and at the same time, it's like the vulnerability is an acquired taste. And that is part of what, um, I am committed to doing is acquiring that taste so that, um, we can start to <sighs> breathe deeper on this planet earth together and take care of it and each other. And, um, it's a, it's a quite a big task and, um, you know, it's like, we just got to roll up our sleeves and get to it. Um, yeah. And, and for me, part, part of being, you know, being, having this training in like pragmatic Dharma, you know, of like looking at what works and I feel like that kind of bring, like, I want to bring that attitude to this conversation as well. It's like, okay, well, what works in order to have these kind of conversations around race that actually lead to people growing, maturing, seeing things they hadn't seen and letting go of things that are unhelpful. Uh, how do we actually transform ourselves and our cultures and our systems so that we can, you know, 
actually move in the direction you're talking. Um, and I think part of how we have to do that is we have to be, we have to be suspect about our ideals around mm -hmm. this. Yeah. And I think one of the ideals that I've had is like, well, if I'm going to talk about race, it has to be, per I have to like know everything and has to like be perfect. Yeah. <laughs> and it's like, well, why? Well, well, one is I don't want, I don't want to say stuff that unintentionally hurts people. And, and there's actually care there. Like, I don't want to fuck up and hurt someone, you know, unintentionally. I know that this, um, this microphone magnifies our voices and, um, at the same time, it seems like avoiding the conversation for me has led to just not being able to have the conversation mm -hmm. and the intention to not hurt or harm actually enables hurt and harm. Mm -hmm. And, and I think this is something you and I've been talking a lot about the difference in these conversations between the intention and the impact of our words or our lack of words. You know, I go back to, to very early formative experience around around this you know where I saw this for the first time and I remember when I was uh, I was living in um, Mars Hill the small rural white town that I lived in really where literally uh, there were just a handful of um, of black folks who lived in that county and they were all on the road right next to ours um, you know there's the Arabs and then there's the black people and then everyone else is white in the whole county. Um, you know, that during that time, I remember um, my, some of my neighbors who had a, uh, a friend who was visiting, an older uh, black girl. And she was probably, I guess, 13 or so. And I was probably maybe nine or 10. I was still pretty young, but, um, you know, I ended up going over to hang out and, and, and with my friends and to meet her. And I just wanted to connect, you know, and be friendly. And I, one of the first things I shared with her, and I, which I thought was uh, smart at the time, I said, you know, um, my people, you know, uh, and, and I, 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 we've been referred to as sand N-words. You know, so I tell, tell her this. And, you know, she didn't say anything. And then later my friend comes back and she tells me, she's like, why did you say that? Like, that hurt her feelings so bad. She was crying. She was so upset. And I was like, oh, I'm so sorry. I was just, I was trying to share something that I thought would connect us. You know, I thought this is something that would like, like we'd have some common ground. And I realized, you know, especially later when I reflected back on this experience, how I just didn't have a clue, you know, what that word meant the significance of it, the, the, the reality of what it was for her and her life. And I was, you know, I, I think had an intention of friendliness and wanting to connect, but just was so ignorant um, to, to the deeper things going on. And mm -hmm. I think a lot of these conversations around race, that's part of what is happening is that it's, there's so much lack of awareness and ignorance built into our society into our education etc that like when we open our mouths and have these conversations things like that happen and you know for me that was part of what i think also part of why i ended up feeling hesitant to have conversations about race because i saw that i really did i opened my mouth and tried to say something nice yeah. and instead i really hurt someone yeah 
Um, and then, you know, it seems like the step that, you know, I'm willing and like we're willing and that we're moving forward is to be able to open our mouths, be less blatant about the aggressions that come out of them. Hopefully in our work, we learn that, okay, yeah, we don't say things like that. Um, and if we do and we do, um, sometimes less often, hopefully, um, that we can take the, the mirroring back of whatever the impact is and let that pain move through us and take that in and learn and say, whoa, oh my goodness, you know, that was harmful. And I just learned a lot from that situation and I'm not going to do that again. Um, And the way that we respond to the impact and seeing our impact clearly is really, really important. Um, You know, do we do the white tears thing as white people and start crying where all of our attention goes right to that person that's crying? Or can we sit there and say, whew, that was painful. Okay, let me feel into that, but not do the damsel in distress if you're a white woman and and be the the rescuer if you're a white man and say, okay, let me see. Let me center um, the people of color in the room and their voices. Let me center the black people right now and say what what is needed here and be willing to speak up and make a mistake and feel the pain. And through that, joy can come because you know, without really being able to deepen into the pain of the situation, we're not going to see the joy and the um, interconnectedness that really can start to to be more of our home base together here. Mm. I I think one of the things that my, that the friends I see kind of having this more reactive response or who just aren't saying anything you know, part of what I sense from them when I've talked to them about this, some of these people, it's good intentions, like well-meaning, smart people with good intentions who I think just don't really have a, a clear understanding of how different it can be as a minority in America and in particular a minority that's targeted. Yeah. Um, and, and this is where I am really kind of grateful on the one hand to be part of a Palestinian family because in terms of Arab minorities who've been targeted, they're sort of, you know, <laughs> they're, 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 you know, they're, they're high on the list, you know. And so, you know, I, I know from my own family history of, you know, ethnic cleansing, genocide some you know and then post 9-11 in this country really seeing some of my close family members be targeted you know um, systematically targeted by the u.s government um, both traveling and also by the irs Um, you know and i think this needs to be acknowledged you know that the u.s government after 9-11 there was about a million u.s citizens who were arab or had connections to the arab world and they were all put on a list and the people on that list, including my grandparents, they were harassed, um, consistently harassed. And there was no way to get off the list. It's just anytime they traveled, they'd spend several hours in an airport, you know, and they're, they're in their seventies being put in a small room and like just left there, you know, and these are us citizens, you know? And so there it's like, to me, that was an awakening. Like I wasn't the one in the room, but my grandparents were. And I saw from that experience how, yes, our government and our country 
can make really, really, really bad decisions around how to treat difference when it's threatened. And basically it seems to me like the black American experience is just a 400 year history of that, you know? And it's like, just a 400 year history. It's a history. It's, <laughs> it's a, a great, yeah. It's like, whew, it's a long time to be, um, yeah, to be consistently traumatized. Yeah. And yeah. it's, and it's pretty weird. Like I'll tell you what, what was most interesting, like in the wake of, of seeing my grandparents treated like this, it was first it was disbelief, like from all of our family members are like, how could, there must be some mistake or it's like, how could our government be doing this? And then there was a growing sense of like, no, actually, this is how our government is treating this. And that didn't really change that significantly when Obama was elected. That's <laughs> the other thing. Like, this is something that's been consistent in, in our country's politics. And, and so I think, you know, there's no simple like patch, like just having a person, like a black man in that presidency doesn't change all of this institutionalized racism instantly, you know, and um, part of what I saw in my own family's response was this growing sense of lack of trust, like a, a growing sense of betrayal and lack of trust. And I saw this over the last 20 years, but imagine if that, that's like your ancestors' history, like one after the other after the other is this complete lack of trust in the institutions and the organizations and the culture that you are embedded in and dependent on for your survival and thrive, thriving. Like, I just don't think as white people, we can really grasp or grok that. I think it's just so far beyond our no most of our normal experiences that it's just really difficult to find a way in to understanding a tenth or a hundredth of what that might be like. And that's where I feel like this lack of empathy and compassion, this lack of being able to and willing to see what it might be like on the other side, like it really shuts otherwise well-meaning, well-intentioned people down from being part of the solution, you know, from actually being able to bear witness to some of the pain and to acknowledge the, the real long-standing damage that's done when our institutions turn their back on certain people. Yes, and that is part of what I feel like we're going to have to do is start to earn the trust back. Like Marupa University, I can't just like put a sign on my cubicle and say this is a safe zone. Right. Um, and that is where I'll start is by knowing that trust needs to be earned and that um, we've got to be able through our practice, through mindfulness, if we really do take this seriously to, you know, ground ourselves in that universal. Everybody has a body, everybody has breathing, everybody has thinking, everybody has feeling. So let's see what we can do to like really know ourselves deeply um, so that we can come together and um, really work through this in a way that's going to afford us and not necessarily from a place where we think we can just meditate the pain away because that's just not going to work. After nearly a year in private beta, the Buddhist Geeks Network is now open for any independent practitioners who want to engage in interdependent practice. You can find out more about the Buddhist Geeks Network by visiting BuddhistGeeks.network. 
And if you'd like to join the community and join us in regular social meditation practice or other events that we host there in the network, all freely offered, you're very welcome to do so, again, by visiting BuddhistGeeks.network. Love to see you there.